Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Say Why to Drugs. Thanks again to everyone who's come along to book events, who's bought the book or left reviews on Amazon. Um, it's still on 100% five stars there, which is really amazing. And if you want to add to that, well, that would be delightful. More live events are coming up, including a live podcast this Saturday at Vault Festival in London about sex and drugs. And that one is going to be, I'm really excited about that. The guest is going to be Alex Aldridge and it's going to be brilliant. So if you can Tickets are still available. Have a look online. You can find them. Um, also, the following weekend, the 14th, a talk at Glasgow's I Write Literary Festival. So I think tickets are available for that as well. But to today's episode. This one is, as you may have noticed, a long one. And the reason for that is that it's an interview with Twitter's secret drug addict. I thought about editing it down to make it a bit shorter, but really there was nothing in the conversation that I wanted to remove. A few trigger warnings before we start. The conversation, as you might imagine, covers drug use and contains swearing. It also covers topics including psychosis and witnessing someone die after taking drugs. As this is a long episode, I'll leave it there. Um, but I really hope that you enjoy this conversation between myself and the secret drug addict. <laughs> I am the secret drug addict. Cool. Um, so, I guess probably the best place to start is um, what's a secret drug addict? Um, it's an account I run on social media. So, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And essentially, it's. Um, it's just a platform to kind of talk about addiction, mental health and kind of, you know, offer support and signposting to, to people that might be affected by those issues. So I'm guessing your name means that you consider yourself a drug addict? I do. I do, yes. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of your history um, and your experiences with drugs? And so you stopped using drugs I stopped using drugs in no uh, 12th of June 2007. 2007, that's where I got the seven from, sorry. (laughs) Um, So, okay, yeah, so tell us a little bit about your kind of drug use and why why you started using drugs, why you carried on using drugs, when you realised you had a problem with drugs. I mean, this is a big, broad question. Um, Yeah, there's a lot in there um, to cover. I started using drugs, I suppose around the age of 11 or 12 you know we were smoking 
hash and drinking. Um, and it's something like you and your friends kind of... Yeah, yeah, we were doing it, you know, after school at lunchtime, you know, going back into school kind of stoned, you know, after six of us sharing, like, you know, one joint between us or something. And, um, yeah, it was fun. Did drugs because I found, you know, life was kind of boring, I suppose, and drugs made it fun. And, um, you know, it's like, you know, took all your inhibitions away, made you feel, I don't know, I don't really know, made you feel... Um, more connected to, to what was going on, I suppose. So 11, 11 or 12 seems maybe young for... Use, were you using drugs quite regularly then, or...? Um, I, I mean, I suppose, I suppose quite regularly. I mean, you know, every Friday lunchtime, we, did, we had double PE Friday afternoon. So every Friday lunchtime, we'd go to my friend's house who lived over the road from the school... And we would drink, uh, we'd, take, we'd have like little shots of uh, absolute vodka and, um, you know, put c- CDs on and listen to music and just like, you know, mess around for our lunch and then go to kind of pee pissed, I suppose. Yeah, well, yeah, drunk, you know. Um, you know, I remember there was a few times drinking on the way to school, you know, so turning up in assembly drunk. And, and I think, you know, I think part of it was um, I liked the attention you know, being, you know, being that, you know, being the kid that was, like, drunk and was a bit sort of, you know, I suppose rock and roll, like, you know, you know, just having something that separated me from everybody else was, you know, it made me an individual and it made me feel different or special and and I kind of liked that that attention, you know, as well, which, I, you know, reflection, I suppose, was, isn't healthy. But um, looking back, was I young? I suppose, I mean, I've got, I've got a child now who's a year or two older than that. And he's, you know, the idea of him drinking or doing drugs, I, you know, is, he's incredibly young. Do you know what I mean? He's yeah. very, you know, I was, I think I was a year old when I'd left school. I'm looking at him now going, this boy, he's not even equipped for school, let alone life, you know. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it was, you know, but it's... I, people around me there was I mean there was older kids from the youth club that were smoking you know smoking hash and you know there wasn't any hard drugs that I knew of that you know around me my parents didn't really drink or do drugs at that time so it wasn't kind of it wasn't culturally you know I wasn't steeped in it Mm. it was something I think that I, I I I made an effort to seek and so you you say you left school fairly soon after that yeah, pretty yeah. And then what did then what did you what did you go on to do? Well, I ended up in a women's refuge with my mum when I was like um 13 in in Wales. So I ended up leaving London and going to this village in Wales which was a real culture shock. And I sort of came back after about 6 months and went to live with my dad and he just didn't bother sort of enrolling me in school or you know he was busy working just getting on with his life we were kind of like flatmates and I had you know I didn't make any effort to you know I wouldn't have even known how to have gone about trying to get into us find a school and you know get into it so um I just started working basically I kind of we was I started I was I recently started going to nightclubs at that time I was spending a lot of time in pubs and nightclubs with kids that were I was like 13, 14, they were, the youngest were probably 17, 18, 
you know, they few of their older friends were in their early twenties. So I was kind of hanging about with these 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 guys that are older than me. So you know, they I'd be in the pub in the corner, they'd buy the drinks and you know um, stuff like that. And I ended up working at a nightclub, doing just flyering, just standing outside clubs at two o'clock in the morning, handing out bits of paper. And it was um, it was quite a cool indie club. It was um, <clears throat> it was in the West End. And it was um, it was one of those nightclubs that kind of you know that lots of musicians went to, lots of music journalists. So it was a kind of an industry nightclub as opposed to for punters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So you, you know you'd be you know you'd be in the toilet and you'd have you know one of the guys from Blur would be in there and you'd have one of the guys from Ride or you know all these kind of um, shoegaze and indie bands. So and was this like early nineties? This was like ninety two. Yeah. Around 1992, and you know Kurt Cobain, if he, you know, around 91, like yeah, around 91, you know, Kurt Cobain, if he was in London, he would come down and stuff, and it was just a real cool kind of hangout. And um, once I kind of got involved in that, that was it. I just that was kind of what I wanted to be in was like music and hang out with musicians and stuff. So the idea of sort of education or, you know, it was completely out the window at that point. At this point, you were what in your kind of mid-teens, I guess. Fourteen, maybe. Yeah. So. I was going to ask, was do you think your drug use was a problem then? But obviously, that's that's still really young, and like it's a pro- a problem for people that young to be using drugs for lots of reasons in terms of kind of development, yeah, and yeah, I mean, markers I... for behavioural problems. But in terms of your day to day life, where did the drugs fit in? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, at the time there was absolutely no problem. You know, I was doing drugs, I was staying up most of the night or you know till two three four o'clock in the morning you sleep until lunchtime you know and just repeating it every day basically I remember at one point around the age of sort of 15 or 16 we, we were looking at the clubs we were going to and stuff and I was thinking we were going to 10 or 11 nightclubs a week you know we would sort of you know as we jump in a car and we'd maybe hit two or three nightclubs in one night and stuff and because we were kind of working you know I was in the music industry and We'd get him free everywhere, so it wasn't costing us anything. Um, you know, you could do two, three hours sleep, stay up all night, go to work. You could, you know, you was, I was kind of elasticated still at that point. So I wouldn't, yeah, it was never a problem. Looking, you know, looking back now, I, uh, I didn't develop emotionally. <laughs> I developed quite bad sleeping habits. You know, I don't have the best coping skills for life. Um, so, yeah, there were, like, you know, there were lots of negatives in that sense. I didn't pursue education you know, which yeah. at the time you don't understand, but you know, when you're kind of when you're focused on just music and drugs and you know chasing girls, there's a lot of stuff, life stuff that passes you by, and then you kind of come out of it the other side, and you're kind of like, I don't know what what happened. But it's a it's a long way between the early '90s and 2007 when you stopped using drugs. So yeah, kind of what happened in that between time. Did things were things good for a long time, or like when did when did you start to think that you had a problem? Um, do you know? I don't think things were ever really good. You know, people sort of say to me, "Oh, you must have had so much fun." And when you go, "Well, yeah," you know, I was very lucky, and there was, I I I did some fantastic things and met some really interesting people, and you know, mm-hmm. had some these amazing experiences. But the flip side of that is, I spent a lot of time suicidal. I spent a lot of time sabotaging relationships I spent a lot of time being asked to clear my desk and leave 
um, you know, trying to get myself sectioned because I didn't because I felt like I was going in mental and you know there was so there was for all the good times there was lots of bad times as as well and I don't think you know you don't end up in places like women's refuges and 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 the stuff that occurred before that you know in my sort of family and afterwards without you know picking up some baggage that I never really kind of addressed you, you know but. Yeah, it was essentially, it was manageable, you know, it was kind of drugs and fun and the, the odd problem. And then I got into working at Sony when I was, I think I was maybe 16 or something, and was just completely overwhelmed with it. Just emotionally, I couldn't handle being in, I was in quite, quite a big office, I had, a, I had a secretary, I had, you know, I had an expense account. I'm, you know, I'm flying around the country watching bands and staying in Hilton hotels, and it was... I, I do enjoy... I love staying in hotels. I do kind of enjoy that, the, the anonymity that comes mm-hmm. with that. But by the same token, it can be quite lonely. So you find yourself drinking or, you know, trying to talk, you know, just going out, just trying to meet people and, yeah. and stuff. And I didn't really understand at the time that how lonely a lot of those experiences were, as well as them kind of... There was kind of fun and glamour involved, maybe. Yeah, and then from there I ended up working uh, at Creation Records. I ended up now I'm working with Oasis, I'm working with Primal Scream, Super Fairy Animals, and all these kind of huge <clears throat> indie bands. And um, my drug use kind of increased with that. And I ended up splitting up with the girlfriend I was seeing at the time. And I, couldn't, I just couldn't really cope with it. And then at that point, this was around 98 my sort of drug use became a, a real coping mechanism. I think it had always been a low, you know, low-level stuff, but now it was like, you know, it was... It, 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 that's all it was being used for, and my drug use was kind of, at, at this point... It, was, it, it, it increased as I'd got older exponentially anyway through my teenage years. But um, at that point, it was basically sort of daily. And, you know, the, the dream of kind of always wanting to work in the music industry and sleep with lots of women and do lots of drugs. It was a kind of like a, you know, like a three-pronged dream was now just, it was just drugs, really. That was all I was kind of interested in, do you know what I mean? Women were just kind of getting in the way. You might have to share your drugs with them, which I was never really... At that point, I kind of wasn't really keen on it, do you know what I mean? Uh, I'd rather just do them on my own, you know? I don't... I've got, you know, I'd be going and watching bands for work and... You know, I travel across London to watch a band. Within six or seven minutes, I'm like, I'm, I'm out the door, gone. You know, it's taken me 40 minutes to get there, but I just had to go, and you know, I had to, I had to be there. You know, so just, it just everything kind of became secondary to my, to my drug use and my, you know, work suffered as a consequence. And having a, having a drug, uh, a, a big drug, I say drug problem or you know, heavy drug use, is kind of okay as long as you're doing your job. People will accept it as long as you're making them money. At the point when you're not making them money or you're turning up for work, you know, I'd turn up and I'd have cut my, you know, my arms would be cut up from the night before I'd been, I'd been sort of psychosis and self-harming and, you know, I hadn't had much sleep and, you know, I've got, you know, my arms are, you know, they're scabbing up and they're sort of dry blood on me and I'm, you know, I'm maybe 20 years old. And um, I just think that must have been terrifying. I mean, it was a different time, and I think now I'd like to think that, you know, HR would, would want to have a chat with me and, and support me through it, but at the time there wasn't really kind of HR departments, in, especially in the music industry, and they certainly weren't sort of geared up, I don't think, to dealing with kind of the chaos of uh, adolescent children. Well, I mean, I've read books about creation records, and it seems like you weren't the only person 
have living that kind of life necessarily in in that well i mean i use that record label as an example yeah, but yeah, in the yeah. music I mean, industry more cre- broadly do you think creation a- embraced it creation embraced being the outsider being the rock and roll outsider that was that was that was chaotic and caused trouble and you know was very punk rock i think within that though there were people that would you know they would they would use drugs they would behave in that way but they knew where to draw the line you know, these are people that are still working today that mm-hmm. have worked constantly, you know, through, you know, f- through the, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, whatever. You know, some of them have, you know, have, have, got, have, uh, have become sober maybe. Some of them haven't. Some, you know, as they've got older, I think they've naturally, a lot of them have just calmed down in their drinking and sure. drug use, as yeah, you yeah. do when you become old. Um, but I think that I took it to a, a sort of level that they didn't, you know what I mean? They were mm-hmm. maybe heavy users. I, I was, you know, I would, this is like addiction. I was an addiction, which I think is you know, slightly different Sure, things. yeah. And do you think, though, that being in the music industry made it that bit harder? Or do you think it was more, drugs were more available? It was more kind of condoned or even encouraged? Or do you think that's... Because I think a lot of people who don't work in the music industry have that idea of it. And do you think there's much truth in that? Um... I think it's more available. I mean, you know, the estate I grew up in, you know, drugs was available. That's where I used to get the drugs from. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's a big old, oh, my, I'm good. Let me just call my dealer. I'd be like, let me, I'll call my pal and see if he's around. I, my friends were sold drugs. I, yeah. you know, people I, I grew up with, everybody was involved on some level. Um, you know, were drugs available? I mean, yeah, one of the reasons I got, in the mu- I got into the music industry, I wanted to work in the music industry, was because I wanted to do drugs. I didn't want to get up and, and do ni- a nine to five job in an estate agents or, or, or you know, work at, you know, on the checkout at Tesco's. I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to meet women. I wanted to work in a creative industry and in and around music. And I wanted to do loads of drugs and stay up all night. I mean, that's why else would you get into the music industry? I mean, that's surely that's what ev- that's the dream. I grew up reading these books from, you know, bands like Led Zeppelin or Aerosmith, Guns N' Roses, The Happy Mondays. You know, you know, these were the, this was the dream. And when, was there a particular, was there a particular moment when you realised that you needed to stop? Or was it a gradual thing? So how did that, because I think a lot of people, when they start to go down a path of starting to use more and more, starting to rely on a substance as a, as a coping mechanism or as a crutch more and more, it can be it can be a really sort of gradual. Yeah, it's very insidious. It's very it's a very slow, yeah. insidious kind of uh, um, illness. Um, I mean, I, I in 1998, I, I found a letter the other day, maybe six seven months ago. I found a letter from my my GP, um, you know, where I tried to engage with um, drug services in 1998. So I was maybe 19 or 20 or something. I don't know. Because I knew that my relationship with drugs wasn't right. That I had friends that would they would they were degenerate drug users, but they went they still went home. You know, I would stay up for three days. I'd stay up for five days. I would, you know, I'd be getting warnings at work, and I, I wouldn't listen. I ended up losing the job. It was a great job. I loved that job. It, you know, relationships. She was great. I was really happy with her. She left. You know, this was like a constant with me. Whereas my friends would maybe have low level um, consequences, but they were not as drastic as mine. They didn't. I don't think they obsessed about drugs as much as me, and they certainly didn't do as much as me. Although they were quite capable of going out on a Friday and not coming home to a Sunday, you know that wouldn't be every weekend, yeah. maybe. Do you know, and at least they went home and sort of got to sleep before going to work on Monday. I just, I'd still be out Sunday night and just not going to work on Monday, or worse, I'd turn up. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, 
so yeah, so you know, I've known for a very long time that I had a, a problem, but I thought I didn't understand what addiction was. I, I thought that I was just doing too much, or I just, you know, I was greedy. Maybe that was the problem. Problem was I was greedy. So, you know, or that I'd built up a tolerance. So the reason I have to stay up for five days pumping myself full of drugs is because I've now built up a tolerance. That's the problem. See, so what I need to do is, if I stop doing that drug and start doing this drug for a little bit instead, my tolerance to that drug will drop and, it, and I can go back at some point to use it like I initially did at the beginning when it was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what happens is I just end up addicted to two drugs. And then, so I go, right, we, you know, but we need to we need to stay in the house because every time we go out, we're we're, we're ended up in trouble. So what we'll do is we'll just take Valium for a while, and then that will and then that will sort us out because we'll do a little deed. And it just I ended up just you know tr- trying to find this kind of balance, like a, some sort of mad chemist. If I do just enough of this substance mixed with just enough of that substance with a little bit of this on top, everything will be perfect and I'll be okay. And it, and it, and that 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 wasn't the that that wasn't my experience. <laughs> that never happened. Um, so yes, yeah, so occasionally you would, I, I would have these breaks or I'd switch drugs, and life would maybe improve a little bit. You know, when I was standing in the house just chain smoking skunk and taking Valium, you know, drinking red wine, there was a period where, you know, I wasn't self harming. I wasn't staying awake for three days, four days, five days. I was sleeping a lot. I was eating, so I put a bit of weight on. So you start to feel better about yourself. So you can actually, you know, I'm not that bad anymore. And then you kind of end up sort of, you know, getting yourself into trouble and you get that bad again. And then, you know, so you'd, it was, I went around and around in circles with it for a while. And um, but didn't really know where to go. So I'm going to drug services and, you know, I've got a counsellor there and stuff and, you know, they're offering me rehab and I'm kind of like, well, I can't stop smoking skunk. That's not a problem. Not seeing that, you know, staying in the house and, you know, never going out. That, that, you know, not seeing that as a consequence, not seeing that as a negative. Yeah. So I'm, I haven't got a problem with that. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm getting older and life's passing me by, but at least I'm not staying out for five days. Um, so, I, you know, I didn't want to go to rehab because it was, you know, total abstinence. And the idea of total abstinence was just absolutely terrifying. And um, so I'd sort of bounce in and out of counselling. And, you know, what we do, we just talk about you know the what a dick my dad was or you know my issues with my mum and I think you know going you know going to counselling when you're you maybe haven't had drugs that morning but you know I'm been taking drugs constantly for you know f- you know that whole week the week before you know for you know daily yeah. um and then as soon as I walk out of there being so upset and 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 in, in, in you know emotionally sort of uncomfortable that the first thing I do would be like roll a joint or have a drink and just suppress that stuff. Yeah. So I never really dealt with anything. You know, the, the, you know, any any feelings I had would just get suppressed kind of instantly because they were they were too uncomfortable. So I don't think any of the therapy ever really worked because I wasn't in this in I wasn't in a space to, where it would resonate with me or I could connect mm-hmm. like emotionally with it. So I'd sort of managed between 2000 and 2005, I'd kind of, you know, so I was sort of juggling stuff. I was having these kind of these breaks of certain drugs and doing the ones that were less harmful. And in 2005, it just all started to unravel again. And then in 2006, um, I, I, one of my flatmates ended up stabbing his mum in crack psychosis, ended up murdering his mum. You know, it was in the paper. It was like a pretty big deal. 
as it would be. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It was in the national newspapers, in the local newspapers. Um, you know, this was a guy that I'd sit, you know, we'd be sitting up at two in the morning, you know, doing drugs and he'd be telling me about all the horrific things he'd seen in the Falklands and all this kind of stuff, right? And then, you know, two months later, he's, you know, he stabbed his dad. His dad, the only reason, his, his dad survived because his dad lay down next to his wife who, who was dead and pretended that he was dead. That was the only reason, you know, it was like, it was just madness. So, you know, that happened. And a girl died on my front room floor um, at a, like a house party, just a bunch of us all hanging out doing drugs. And, um, you know, she she'd had a, she did a big line of coke and she went into respiratory failure and she like, she died at, at my feet and, you know, everyone left as you would do. Everyone panicked and everyone was wrapping their drugs and it was getting off. You know, I had someone, you know, stand outside and, you know, wait for the ambulance. You know, I've gone out, they've got off, you know, so it kind of just left me and one other person there. And, um, you know, for like 10 minutes waiting for this ambulance and I'm sitting there doing drugs, just kind of with this body, just, you know, like, four, five foot away from me. And, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, sometimes I'm quite blasé about it in the sense of it factually happened. Other times I kind of connect to it, you know, these moments where it's like, fucking hell, this was like, this ain't, well, it, we weren't supposed to be like this. I thought I was going to be like uh, David Geffen or I thought I was going to, you know, play up front for Arsenal. I thought I was going to, you know, do some stuff. I wasn't expecting to be around this kind of, carnage you know this is not the sort of life that I had planned for myself so yeah so I I, I this kind of happened in a very short space of time and I bumped into somebody in the street and um, I think I was smoking a joint and I'd like I was really you know, I was emotional I think I'd been I was crying off and on and I was just roaming around the streets and I you know I had my hood up and you know I'm not looking anyone in the eye and then I bumped into a pal and he was kind of he sort of said oh you know how's, how's it going what you're up to and I just kind of broke down and said you know I can't I can't do this no more I just I can't cope with this and um you know that he didn't say anything else to me he just got on his phone <clears throat> and he's um ironically enough he's you know he's a friend of mine that sells drugs and he's like rung somebody up and he was always kind of you know when you're in that when you sell drugs you kind of you're always making private phone calls in the corners you know so he's like stepped away from me he's on the phone I'm like crying just waiting for him to get off the phone I think this is kind of inappropriate I've just, <laughs> I've just thanks, like, yeah I've just got really you know I've just bared my soul here and got really kind of honest with you and then he's put the phone in and gone right I'm taking you to um to a meeting and I didn't you know I didn't really know what he was talking about but I was lonely you know he's always got skunk on him he's always got drugs on him I'm gonna just I'll hang out with him <laughs> and he's driven me to a, a Narcotics Anonymous meeting and sat in this meeting with me and you know I'm sat in this meeting you know stoned and listening to the guy talking, and I had no experience at 12-step, you know, 12-step uh, uh, groups, I, you know, self-help groups. I was kind of aware of AA as an institution. I understood yeah. that there was a thing called Alcoholics Anonymous, that's where alcoholics went. But again, you know, my idea of an alcoholic was, was a park bench drunk, yeah. you know, and if you weren't a homeless street drunk, then are you really, are you really an alcoholic? Probably not. Um, so, yeah, but Narcotics Anonymous, certainly I had absolutely no idea that it was, like, even a thing. Um, and, you know, I thought people go to rehab, they come out of rehab and they're, and they're better, and that's the end of it. And, um, you know, just in this meeting, I just heard people talking about, you know, when they stopped, they couldn't stay stopped. 
Um, you know, when they started, they couldn't stop. When they, you know, when they did have brief periods of abstinence, they were obsessing about using again and, and you know, unhealthy relationships and, and all this stuff. And I just kind of got it. In that moment, I realised that I wasn't alone. Whereas before, when I was been doing drugs with all my friends, I'd be like, you know, they're not, you know, they're not the same as me. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I'm different. I'm weird. There's something wrong with me. There's something kind of broken. And being in this meeting, I kind of realised. I just kind of got it. I suddenly understood what addiction was. And, um, and I've, yeah, I've not used drugs since that first meeting, really. I mean, yeah. And that was like the 12th of June, 2007. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Because I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast, and certainly for me as a researcher, you spend so long thinking about the sort of the facts and the numbers that actually the personal stories that kind of resonate you don't necessarily get so much so it's really amazing to kind of hear it so sort of matter of factly I suppose so can you tell us a little bit now about when did you set up secret drug addict and what was your kind of thinking behind using social media for want of a better (laughs) phrase um to talk about these kind of things um set the secret drug addicts up two years ago just oh yeah, I think you know, twenty five months ago or something. Um, basically, just as a, a sort of reaction to you know the the cuts, the austerity cuts in the addiction and kind of mental health services. Really, I mean, I um, I'd hate to be trying to stop using drugs now in the current climate. I don't know if I'd I don't know if I'd find the the help. I don't know if the help's available. I really don't. It's you know there was quite a lot when I got, you know, when I, when I was looking for help. And um, I don't think, you know, a lot of the rehabs are now shut down, a lot of the funding's gone. It's, um, I think it's a tough time. You know, you know I, I think abstinence in itself is incredibly difficult. I think, you know, I mean, you, you'll probably know more than me, the exact figure of people that are able to maintain kind of abstinence. But, you know, I, I'm led to believe it's somewhere around 5% of people are going to recovery, maintain long-term recovery. So it's it's not a great number of people. And that, you know, and those were numbers that were based on all the help that was available, being able to maybe go to to, to um, funded rehab maybe two or three times. I had friends that it maybe took them four or five times before they got clean and got jobs and paid taxes and became contributing members of society. Whereas you're lucky if you get, you know, one trip paid for now. So it's, um, yeah, so it's incredibly difficult, I think. So, yes, I set it up thinking, you know, there's a sort of gap in the market. It was something that I'd spoken to with uh, Neville Southall about. And we'd, we kind of, you know, we'd been speaking and seeing, you know, and and he'd kind of come up with the idea that his his social media platform, and he has like 155,000 people or something, whatever, you know, but he has a decent following, mm-hmm. that that could be used to connect with people that are maybe struggling and maybe don't know where to go or, you know, you know, just want to, someone to communicate with to maybe bounce, I'd, you know, bounce stuff off. Maybe, you know, how do you think I've got a problem because I do this, this and this or, you know, whatever. So I start, we started it up for for that and it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of took off. It's done... It's doing all right. It keeps me busy. It keeps me too busy, if I'm honest. So how does it work then? Do you... 
sort of troll Twitter looking for people who need help or do you kind of hope that people will find you? And I I'm, I think we should also talk about the work that you do with Neville as well because okay. that's really, really interesting. But in terms of Secret Drug Addict, um, quite, uh, you share quite a lot of articles, for example, but do you also, do people take a lot of conversations like offline with you and that yeah i get my i get lots of messages i say lots i mean i don't know what the barometer is for lots but i get you know maybe 30 sometimes more messages a week of people you know inboxing me um i I certainly don't go trawling twitter bothering people about their their substance uh, use you know there's nothing worse than 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 someone who's busy do you know what i mean i um you know, if people are doing drugs and and there's no negative impacts and it's working in their lives, then you know, carry on. You know, carry on. As long as no one's getting hurt, it doesn't. It's not, you know, it's nothing to do with me. If, on the other hand, you're you're drinking or you're doing drugs and there's consequences and you're unable to stop, or you want to talk about that, then I'm available to kind of you know have a chat, support, signpost, share my experiences. You know what? You know, kind of whatever. And so with Neville, um, you manage his... So he, he does Twitter takeovers yes. very regularly and you kind of manage <clears throat> We those. try and do a couple a week. So initially it started off with just me doing it and that seemed to work really well. And then Neville kind of, you know, thought, you know, there were some other topics that he was kind of interested in around, you know, mental health stuff, you know, sex workers, rights. I think they were, the, I think they were the, initially they were the kind of three that we, we, we did. So um, we thought, you know, it's working with my platform. Why would it not work for, for others? And since then, we've kind of expanded it to basically anyone that that's doing anything kind of positive, I suppose. I mean, Neville, I mean, the, the, the process is, is that I will, sometimes Neville will find stuff himself that he's kind of passionate about and will we'll, we'll tell them to contact me. Otherwise, I will just, you know, as, when you're on social media, you come across people's pages, you come across charity pages, you know, campaigners' pages. And if um, if what they're doing looks like it's you know it's positive and it looks like it's um, I think of the right word. The word worthy is springing to my head, but that's probably not yeah. the right word. Well, just you have to yeah. be careful because there's a lot of people go, "I'm a campaigner," and then you're kind of going, "Oh, great," and then you you know they spend most of their time arguing or being confrontational on social media. They don't have you know because they've they maybe are not part of a you know they've had no comms training or. They've got maybe they haven't got you know great people skills. I don't know. You know, there's lots of reasons, mm. and the last thing we want to do is platform somebody that's going to behave in a way that maybe isn't beneficial to their cause. You know, drags yeah. Neville into some sort of controversy. So we try to make sure that they are you know even if it's a campaigner or whatever that that it, they're, they're professional with it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And. Um, and then, yeah, you know, I, I, was, I say to Neville, you know, we've got, what about these? Da, da, da. I'll send him a list of what I, th- you know, who I'm sort of um, recommending. And then he'll, he'll say, I mean, he, never, he, ne- he rarely says no, because they're always good causes. Yeah. And um, then he'll say, yeah, he'll give me a little thumbs up emoji. And um, then I'll contact them. And, you know, if they're interested, which generally they are, I think we've only had two, one or two turn us down. Um, I then will work out, you know, when you know when when works for them and for us and sort of plan it you know plan it that way so you know and I, I, it, it's it's becoming a full-time job which in itself is you know because obviously it's all unpaid no one you know never doesn't get paid i don't get paid no one gets paid but um 
but yeah, but trying to keep on top of everything. So you know, I'm talking to the the the, the, um, the food bank, the Trussell Trussell Trust. Trussell yeah. Trust. I always get that wrong. Trussell Trust. Um, you know, trying to get them on in the next week or two for you know to try Pretty and raise stuff for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So there's all that kind of stuff, which um, you know. So I try and work out a calendar what's going on. You know what awareness weeks, months, or days are coming up. Who would be appropriate for those? You know, how can we help? these different organizations in the, the the best way that you know that benefits them so it can be very time consuming but you know it's um i enjoy it i love it i love it it's a fantastic opportunity to kind of um try and put something positive back into you know into the world i think without sounding too kind of you know romantic and like a dick i think the world needs it and i think twitter needs it sometimes I, as well I, think, so I, I mean yeah i mean a lot of power to you you know people talk a lot about you know you know you know social media and then you know how it's negative and bad for their mental health i mean i tend not to follow too many people on this so my my feed is quite curated yes yeah. <laughs> you know you know and also well, i'm so self-consumed i don't really care what's on you know i don't care what anyone's doing this like how many likes have i got today um you know but um so being able to you know when someone i talk about oh it's such a negative thing i think mine's great yeah. i mean we've you know i've got the trestle trust on we've got women's we've had you know women's aid on next week we've got you know mm. narco or you know whoever it is these, these fantastic organizations and being able to you know if i think i the other thing i love about it as well is that you know i've got I've got no idea how many people I've potentially helped, you know, which is fantastic for my ego because, you know, like, like coming, up, you know, coming up to the election, we were like, right, let's try and get some Labour voices on to campaign because I genuinely don't think this country can survive another Tory government, right? So I said to my wife, oh, we, you know, we've, me and Never organising some, some Labour Twitter takeovers. I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to oust the Tories. And I'm sort of, if it happens, I'm taking responsibility for this, you know. Like, um, so, yeah, so, you know, so it's great for my ego. Because I do, you know, I have to watch my ego. That I don't know who I'm helping. I don't know how many people I'm helping. And that's not, the numbers aren't important. Do, do you know what yeah. I mean? And, and I find a lot of humility. That's one of the reasons why my account is anonymous. You know, the main one is... Is that you know people go oh, you, you know because of the is it because because of the stigma of addiction? I said no. Everybody knows I'm a junkie. Everybody knows I'm an addict. They knew when I was using. They know that I'm not now. I mean, it's not a secret. Um, you know, I maybe don't walk into job interviews or you know go on you know lead with it on dates. You know, the first thing I say is when I'm sitting down with you know opposite somebody is oh you know I'm a, a degenerate drug user. You know, it's not what I lead with, but everybody knows. And if it comes up in conversation, I'm quite happy to kind of, you know, discuss it. But, um, but what I wanted was I wanted to be able to keep a little bit of control over how I tell it, who I tell. And also, as well, I didn't want to be defined by it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, there's, you're that guy that spends his day talking about drugs. You know, I do spend probably too much time talking about drugs. But, you know, and I am a drug addict. But, you know, I have, you know, like we were saying earlier, you know, I have lots of other faults you know, lots of lots of other flawed character. Um, uh, 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 what's it? You know, let's you know, let's not just focus on the fact that I'm an addict. You, you, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the other reason is is for my my humility and my ego. You know, because I meet people and I say to them, oh, I do stuff and never go. Oh, I've seen it. I say, yeah, I'm the secret driver. They go, oh, that's you. And I'm like, you know, I'm like Twitter famous, <laughs> and um, and that's no good for me. Do you know what I mean? The fact that I'm kind of anonymous, it's like I'm Twitter famous, but no one knows who I am. And that just helps keep me 
my ego, my arrogance kind of right size. Do, do you know what I mean? And that, that, that's, I find that very helpful, especially kind of in a, for my own personal recovery, mm-hmm. you know. So you mentioned stigma there, and it's something yes. that I'm really interested in from a sort of, because obviously I work, I do research in this area, and it's something that's really important to me, and I'm really worried and angry about the cuts that are happening to drug services and that kind of thing but how much of a role do you think stigma plays in that and how much of a role do you think it plays in people avoiding sort of seeking help um, that's a bit of a double question yeah I th- I, um, I'd say I'd say huge I'd say huge I mean firstly you know people seeking help um, you know alcohol is fine you know, if you've got an alcohol problem, then that's kind of, that's not too bad. I mean, I say it's fine. For some people, it's not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. if we, you know, if we had to grade, you know, substance problems, yeah. alcohol is, is, the, is, the, is, the, is the, the one that you can, you know, go to HR at work and say, do you know what, I'm mm-hmm. struggling. Or you can go to your GP and say, I think I'm drinking too much. Because there's less of a, of a moral judgment if, if you use alcohol because it's so socially acceptable yeah. that everyone does it. Yeah. I mean, I don't sort of see any difference between alcohol and drugs. Yeah. I mean, it is a drug as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, I, you know, as I say, I've got no problem people with people doing drugs. So it's not like, oh, it's a drug, like it's coming from a judgmental place. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a it's, fact. It has the same effect yeah. on your body and you brain know, as drugs because it is one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I, I sometimes will tweet up um, how many days since I last used drugs, mm-hmm. like four and a half thousand or something now. Right? And I will say it's been so and so many days since I last took drugs including alcohol because for a lot of people they they assume they, drugs and yeah, alcohol yeah. and I, I sometimes say drugs and alcohol when I'm talking about them but the, you know but what that does is I suppose is subtly that kind of separates yeah. the two when there when they're, there is no separation they are both they're drugs you know cocaine alcohol are drugs it's you know or crack or heroin you know they're drugs yeah. so I think that you know I you know I've worked in the kind of entertainment industry and I, I'm you know I've got some friends that I suppose are f- famous and you know, I, I, I get to mix in some kind of interesting circles, and, I, and I've, I know quite a lot of people that would you would consider famous, I suppose, that are in recovery. And you know, I've seen articles in newspapers when they're talking about, but they've sort of come clean about their 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 use. Only refer to alcohol mm-hmm. when I know that they take drugs as well. But what they don't want is this: if you come out in newspapers and say, you know, if if you are a BBC One presenter and you're an alcoholic. That's kind of okay. People go, oh, I understand he's got some trouble with alcohol. If they're, you know, if they're smoking crack, or you're like Richard Bacon, who was on, you know, Blue yeah. Peter, <clears throat> doing coke, that's not somehow okay. that's that's yeah. not so that's not okay. Do, do you know what yeah. I mean? And um, you know, and I think that I understand why people do that. You know, because they've got careers and you know they've got a public perception that they don't want to kind of da- you know damage, but. That I don't think that helps the general public. I don't yeah. think that helps the, the person on the street that's maybe you know got got, got issues around some, with substances or you know drugs, whatever. Um, but you know, it is what it is. But yeah, no, I think that there is a it's acceptable to be an alcoholic within reason. Do you know what I mean? You know, or it's not maybe not acceptable. It's understood. Understandable. Yeah. It's understood. All right. But anything else is kind of it's not. And more so, I think that with alcohol, I say there's like a, a, a sense of empathy, whereas with drugs, it's kind of, you know, it's your own fault. 
well, I'm not drugs because they're all drugs. With yeah, yeah, you know, no, with fine, with yeah. street drugs, right? It's your own fault. You did it to yourself. You chose to do this yes. illegal thing, and so yeah. therefore, well, yeah. you know, I yeah, I chose to do drugs. I chose to drink. Yeah. I mean, I went to the pub. I was in the pub with there was two hundred other people in the pub that were all drinking. How did I know? That I was going to end up with a, you know, with an issue. I, I didn't know, you know. The, 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 you know, the, the thing about addiction is, is that you don't understand you're addicted until you can't stop. You know, it's like I've got, you know, I've got allergies. I'm allergic to penicillin, so it's quite clear what happens if I take penicillin. If it had been the same with alcohol, then I wouldn't have drunk the second time. Yeah. The third time, the, you know, I, it wouldn't, I, it wouldn't have got to a, a place where it became a, a problem. You know, so it's like you kind of you did it to yourself. Well, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't choose to be. You know, to, to to have people dying in my front room. I didn't choose to. You know, to 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 have girlfriends leave me when they gave me ultimatums. You know, I've stopped doing drugs or I'm gone. I didn't. You know, I wasn't. These weren't choices that I made. You know, or you know, jobs that were. You know, if you if you're late, if you don't, if you know, if you're late again, that's you know, we're gonna have to sack you. I didn't. You know, I didn't. You know, these weren't choices that I made. I was kind of compelled to you know to use drugs or or you know whatever so yeah i don't um yeah i think you know around sort of stigma and stuff i think yeah i think there 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 is one i mean this is a bit more of a difficult question but what what do you think we what should researchers be doing about this what could people in the public eye be doing about this and what could the general public do about this <laughs> just an easy question. If I knew the answer to that, I'd monetize it. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, I think you know. I think the simple thing is is to is that you know if we start if we treat addiction as a as a health issue, I mean that's yeah. a basic. You know, I mean I uh, you know I'm totally abstinent, but I understand you know the idea of um, you know shooting galleries for people to use in or, or giving them you know medical you know medical so heroin like and safe, stuff. safe injecting rooms yeah for yeah yeah inject drugs i to... mean my thing is is that i just want to keep people alive i can't i can't help somebody you know get off drugs if they're dead ultimately do, do you know what i mean i mean it's like you know so my goal is to keep them alive and hopefully they'll get to a place where they maybe want to stop and if they don't that's fine what you know it's whatever works for them you know, I don't think that treating it as a um, a criminal issue, I don't think that solves anything. I mean, you know, it didn't stop me. Getting arrested didn't stop me. What it did do was it stopped me working in certain jobs. It stopped me being able to travel to certain countries. <clears throat> you know, so the consequences of my, of, uh, of, of my drug use, you think, right, I've got clean now. I'm not using drugs. I'm now time to, like, you know, get on my life. And you kind of go, oh, no, I can't go for that job because Those I've got are closed, yeah. yeah you know because of stuff that happened you know three years ago five years ago however long you know you're left with the consequences of that and I don't know any any addict that didn't use because they might get into trouble with the police I mean you know there's you know there's you know organizations like we are the loop for example do all the sort of testing you know the front of the house testing at festivals and that you know, um, Festival Republic that own Reading and Leeds and, you know, you know, most of the big UK festivals won't allow them on site. And, you know, they had two, two deaths this year, you know, in the space of two days, you know, both teenagers as well. They were, you know, young people. And, you know, the arguments that I read for, oh, it encourages people to use drugs. It, it, it makes them think that the drugs are safe. I've bought drugs 
I mean, I remember being on tour with Blur in like 2003 and I'd, I'd run out of drugs in Germany. We'd ended up in Paris and I was like, I've got a score. So I found some, a bunch of kids on the corner near where we were from like Senegal and I've got me, I've got my passport on me, I've got all my money, I've got everything on me. You know, I should have dashed it all at the venue and just come out with just a few quid. And, the next, you know, I'm in a taxi with these guys, you know, up an industrial estate, like, scoring. I don't know what the I don't know what they gave me. It wasn't very good. You know, on reflection, you kind of, what do you expect? Do you, do you know what I mean? You know, I'd done the same thing to them if they was in London. But um, it didn't stop me. All my, my thought was, look, it's not, what, it's, not, it's not very strong. If I take lots of it, though, um, yeah. it might work. You know, it's like people don't do drugs because they don't know what's in it or, you know, they just do it. Yeah. You know, and that's all. I mean, maybe that's just my experience. I don't know. So I, well, I think it's quite reflective of what you see in in people's behaviour in the real world. Is that these kind of harm reduction me- measures? They might not help everyone, but if they reduce harm for the majority of people, then it's better than not doing anything at all. You want to keep people alive. Exactly. I mean, that's ultimately. Ultimately, I mean, you know, the well, and healthy, ideally. Yeah, so, as healthy as they I can mean, they, be. They did it yeah. sort of like with fabric, didn't they? You know, they, they, a couple of you know, a couple of young boys died outside, and you know, it's like we can't keep drugs out of prisons, but we expect people to keep drugs out of nightclubs, which I just think is mental. Do you know what I mean? It's like I don't know how that sort of double standard works, but you know, it is what it is, and. um so these kind of things are they're gonna they you know they upped their um you know security to get their license and they had to have like extra dogs and you know police or something you know the presence of of of, of people you know um around the the door to you know people coming in so they don't bring drugs in i'll just do all my drugs outside mm. that's what i would do well and that's what people i would just load doing, up outside yeah. and go right well I'll get in before it all goes wonky. Mm-hmm. Probably have to write off the first couple of hours, but I'll come out of it at two in the morning and be grand. You know, so it's like, and again, that's danger. That's when people start overdosing and, and stuff, you know, it's just, so yeah, so these, I mean, these, these kind of preventative measures are just nothing short of kind well, of Well, and what you've just described is the kind of un, unforeseen or potentially foreseeable, but uh, unconsidered consequences that actually these kind of harm reduction measures like putting increased security on doors could actually increase the risk of harm mm. inside because of people doing yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. what you say, of taking everything that they've got before they go in and potentially getting into real problems once they're inside yeah but i mean i suppose that's the that's the consequence of having people that i i suppose weren't drug users weren't i mean you haven't got to be an addict you know know what i mean it's not even sort of oh you're an addict or you're a heavy drug just people who are kind of in and around that environment that you know have, have, have gone through it you know these people have no kind of lived experience so they, these, these, these kind of opinions and these, these preventative measures they put in are just absolutely ridiculous to anyone that has any kind of experience of it. Do you, do you know what I mean? As I say, the, the idea that I'm not going to do drugs because I don't know what's in it would just be, like, ridiculous. Of course I'm going to do it. I'll just take a little bit first, though. <laughs> see what it's like. Yeah. yeah. So th- this is a science podcast. So one of the things that I'm quite interested in is when you were using drugs... What did you think? I mean, you've just said that it didn't, you weren't necessarily worried about what it was. You, if you were given something like a white powder or a pill, you'd probably take it and, and find out that way. But were you, did you ever think about what the effects of drugs were in terms of 
would that impact your likelihood to use or no. did you think about like what different drugs have different effects I guess you kind of talked about this with thinking about moving from one substance to another when you were worried that you were using one too much you'd move to a different one but did you did you ever think about kind of the evidence of the effects of drugs when you were doing them or you just wanted something that was going to change your mental state? When you say effects, do you mean like the physical long-term or mental long-term effects or the, the effect in that moment? Kind of both, I guess. Um, not really. Not, I mean, you know, I would... It, it ended up at the stage where, <clears throat> you know, I'd go out on, you know, I'd go to, I'd go to a, the, the, the nightclub down the end of the road, go to the pub and, you know, my mate would be DJing so we'd pop down or whatever... And I'd have maybe done 20 mils of Valium, smoked a couple of skunk joints and been drinking. And I'd be at the, at the bar, like, sort of dribbling. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've had, like, like I've got, like, like, I've had a stroke or something. So I'd be, I'd, you know, I would do drugs that maybe weren't appropriate to... The situation. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So I was yeah. like, oh, we're at nightclubs, so let's do loads of coke or let's do loads of ease and... You know, you think the Valium would be for, for that, be for home. Do you know what I mean? When you've got a good movie on or something, right? So, um, but yeah, I mean, there would be times we'd kind of go, right, well, this is going on. So, you know, there's like a movie marathon going on. So make sure I've got like a quarter of skunk and a bottle of red wine or a bottle of gin and, you know, that kind of thing. But I mean, in terms of the long term effects or the health implications, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. I mean, I think. Young people in general, I mean, maybe now it's slightly different, but I think young people in general aren't that concerned. You know, they don't think about death too much. I mean, maybe now they do because, you know, the Earth's, like, going to fall apart. But in terms of the, 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 themselves, you know, I, you know, I, I've, I've, I've sat there after, you know, I've been up for days and I, and I feel like my heart's about to explode and I'm still doing coke. I'm still, you know, still dropping ease. It's not, it's not been like, I actually think I'm going to die. And, you know, I possibly, I don't know how, you know, I'm not going to be dramatic. I don't know how close to death I possibly was. There's been times I've took myself up the hospital, you know, three or four times, maybe, maybe a couple more where I've been with people and it's like, I, f- I actually think I'm going to die. And I've had to go to the hospital, you know, the hospital was probably on the way home. So it wasn't like going out of my way, but you know, it was like, you know, and I've took myself to A&E and, you know, after t- you know, two hours of waiting in the, the in the uh, in, in the waiting room or whatever. I've got bored and gone home, but there's been moments where I'm like, I think I'm sort of. It's not stopped me though. Mm-hmm. In the next day, two days later, a week later, I'm you know straight back doing what I'm doing. So to finish off, do you have any advice that you would give to first of all to to young people who are thinking <clears throat> about using substances who haven't, and then to people who are worried about their substance use so you know without being sort of too preachy I, I used to go into secondary schools and talk to kids and I didn't want to be that sort of old guy you know I'm like 41 now. I don't want to be that old guy who rocks into school you know with big collars trying to you know you know connect with the kids and be like cool groovy and sort of start using words that they use do you know what I mean right you know kids are going to do what they're going to do and trying to tell a kid who's 15 that they um they shouldn't do drugs is I think it's just ridiculous you know 
when I was 15, if someone had said that to me, and I'd be like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm having my first sex experiences. I'm having, you know, I was, I got drunk the other night. This girl and she was drunk, and you know, I put my hand up at top, and it was like the best night I've ever had in my life, right? So, you know, do you know what I mean, though, right? So when these kids are kind of having these experiences, and there's, there's, there's no consequences at that point, to tell them not to do, don't do drugs, just say no. It's just, it's ridiculous. And I think that, I think that as much as I love the just say no kind of narrative, I find it, I find it funny. Do you know, do you know what I mean? I've got, you know, if you remember the uh, Dare to Resist oh, Drugs and Violence, I've got, you know, I've got T-shirts with that stuff on. I was going to wear one today, but I thought, I oh, know she'll think I'm some sort of mad <laughs> sort of anti-drugs <laughs> campaigner. And that's, that's not where I'm at, you know, so... Um, but you know, I find that I find all that stuff, and you know, I, I sometimes sit there on YouTube and watch all these kind of videos. The you know, fried egg, yeah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like the uh, the reefer madness, all that stuff. Right? It's absolutely nonsense, right? So, sort of trying to tell kids, you know, oh, don't do drugs. Or so my kind of the way I try and approach it when I was when I was talking to lots of young people would be um, to say to them, you know, what, if you're, you know, you're you're doing all your homework. You're, you know, you're, you're fulfilling all your responsibilities during the week and you're going and getting stoned with your mates on a Saturday night playing FIFA or, or whatever. That's fine. So, but if you're finding that you're, you know, you're walking, you know, you're, you're turning up at school stoned or you're getting stoned at lunchtime and you're unable to concentrate in the afternoon or you start dropping stuff out, you know, whereas I'd be out, you know, I'd be out with mates and I'd be like, oh, well, I want to go home and get stoned. I'd leave. It'd be, you know, perfectly fine where we were having fun. There were women, you know, there was whatever going on. And I'd like, well, I want to leave and go and get stoned on my own or go and do drugs on my own. If you're finding that you're doing stuff like that, where it becomes slightly more important than everything else, or, you know, you're starting to get paranoid, you think, you're, you know, you think your girlfriend fancies your mate, some whatever madness is going on for you. If that stuff is starting to happen, maybe you want to look at, you, you know, how much you're smoking, how much you're drinking. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, you know, because for me, when it was sort of, you know, I grew up with the just say no stuff. It was like, just say no. If you, you know, reefer madness, if you smoke a joint, you're going to go mad. I smoked a joint, giggled and got off of a girl over Hampstead Heath. It was a fantastic experience. It was a fantastic experience. So if you're, li- you know, if you're lying about that, what yes. else are you lying yeah. about? So what, so what about the heroin that you're saying is really bad? I'm not sure if I believe that now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, it loses the credibility. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So... I try and sort of be honest and say, you know what, if, you know, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to do drugs, then, you know, do what you're going to do. But as I say, there are consequences. Do you know what I mean? You know, and consequences can be positive. My experience, there weren't many towards, especially towards the end of my drug use. You know, my, my, my brother's got drug induced schizophrenia from smoking skunk. Right. These are, these are, these are real consequences. Not everyone gets them though, but I will inform you with as much information as possible so you can make the best choice for yourself. And also as well, if you know that stuff, then when things start to go wrong, you're then maybe in a position to seek help. I didn't know what was wrong with me. You know, I, I, I say I, I, I wanted help in 1998. Didn't get it, didn't, you know, didn't get my shit together till 2007. In that period, I lost jobs and burnt bridges and, you know, work in the music industry. I, um, I had multiple girlfriends, you know, I'd say they all left me. They didn't leave me. I pushed them away from with my, you know, my outrageous behaviour. Um, I had people die. I had, you know, there was stuff that, there was stuff that happened that I didn't need to experience if only I'd known years earlier that, you know, what was wrong with me, what help was available. Do, do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, you know, talk about in recovery, oh, you, you, know, you got to hit a rock bottom. And I kind of agree with that. You have to, you know, because, because drugs are, 
essentially fun and also as well, you know, a coping mechanism and all this other stuff, right? That I'm not, when things start going wrong, the first thing I'm, 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 the first thing I'm not going to do is stop. That's not, oh, you know, you need to stop using drugs. No, it's the, it's the girlfriend, it's the boss, it's my dad, it's my mum, it's my situation. If you'd grown up how I'd grown up, then you would do what I did. It's everything else. It's It's everything else, right? It was only until all that had been stripped away that I kind of accepted that the common denominator in all of these issues, all these problems that I have is me and that drugs are genuinely involved, you know? So maybe that's the problem, right? So you have to hit a rock bottom, but why does my, why does your bottom have to be stepping over someone that's overdosed and died? Why does it have to be being made homeless? Why does it have to, you know, why did it have to be me not having a relationship with my mum for 14 years before she died? Why did, you know, all these things that, that happened to me, it didn't have to be that. It could have just been the first job. First girlfriend, second girlfriend, maybe, as opposed to the fifth or sixth. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So my thing is, is, is trying to raise the bottom, you know, yeah. so that so these st- this stuff doesn't have to happen to you. So you you know, after losing one or two jobs through because of drug use, maybe you're like maybe I do need to stop. As I said, so, as opposed to being like homeless on the streets or suicidal or you know whatever. So yeah, I try and talk to people and kind of. You know, inform them because I just don't think fear works. It doesn't work. You know, and then once say once, like you said earlier, once you lose credibility, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Once you're once you're once you're known as a as a bullshitter, no one's it's listen. it's done. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And 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 children especially, are, uh, you know, they're, they're you know, bullshit they, yeah, yeah, they yeah. think that adults all they think that adults are trying to fuck with their fun anyway. Do you know what I mean? So if you kind of end up somewhere in that area, you're just written off. Do you know it's, what I mean? It's ironic because we all were teenagers as well. <laughs> yeah, you'd think we would know. You think we yeah. would know what you know how what is receptive to children, what they you know what they respond to. But unfortunately, it's like you get old and you yeah. you forget. You yeah. forget. It's like you know suddenly all the music they listen to is rubbish. You're gonna go. I'm sure my parents used to say that shit to me. Do you know what I mean? You know, and it's yeah. yeah. Well, th- pondering on our old age seems like a great place to finish this. So thank you so much for uh, talking to us today. Thanks for inviting me. And there we go. Um, I'd like to thank The Secret Drug Addict again for taking the time to come and speak to me. Now, I know Say Why to Drugs is a science podcast, and perhaps some of you are wondering where the science was in this conversation. But as I said partway through the episode, I think that hearing the human stories behind the statistics is both important and quite powerful. If you like this episode and you'd be keen to hear more of these kinds of conversations, then please let me know. Do come along to some of the live events, as I said at the beginning. You can find details on my website, susiegage.co.uk. So far, there are events in London, Glasgow, Hexham and Oxford that have been announced, and there are many more in the pipeline. So I hope to meet some of you in person, and if not, see you next time, which will probably be the live event that's happening in London this very weekend. Bye! Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.